0: Send it into the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack, a commercial diving podcast for divers by divers. Episode number two My feet, my hands, my neck, my pride. Dive injuries. We will be talking about some injuries we may encounter in the water and how to maintain a safe working environment. We'll be joined by Sean Williams, a DMT and a diver with the Port of Long Beach. Victor Rivera, a freelance diver, dive supervisor and owner of Rivera Core Dive Company. Make sure to like and follow on Instagram at Bottom Dwellers DS Facebook page, Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. We appreciate your support. Stand by, we're gonna make it hot.
1: The views and opinions expressed by the guests on this podcast are that of their own. In no way, shape, or form do they reflect the official policy or position of the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack.
0: All right, welcome to another episode of the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. It's me, LB Diver, again. Uh, got a couple guests on for you. Uh, co-host today is going to be uh, Sean. And then uh, our guest today is going to be uh, Victor the Warrior. How's it going, Vic? Good. What's up, brothers? It's good to have you on here, man. Nah, What's good going on, 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 Vic? Not much, man. Doing the
2: dude, drinking some Jack. There right. you go.
0: Hey, before we get into it, let's get a shot going. You got some Jack there. I got some Tito's. Yeah. So since it's vodka, I got to do like a double right? <laughs> Alvaca, that's a girl's drink. Yeah, like I know. Drink. You know, and I knew you were going to say something about it, but that's all I got. I ran out of whiskey already. It was a big thing with the Dodgers, you know? Doggy see, I'm drinking Jack
2: straight in the glass, but
1: I'm even going to do a shot. Just see, Jack. Oh, man. Speaking of the Dodgers, that was one stressful series.
0: Oh, boy. Talk about dive injuries.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, up, guys.
0: <clears throat> beautiful. Oh yeah, always. Ah. It's a diver's switch right there. free pirate style. <clears throat> yeah. I just don't do bro <laughs> Oh boy. But yeah, so <clears throat> we're gonna be we're gonna be talking about uh dive injuries today, kind of stuff that we've encountered and you know, kind of how to deal with it in the water. I mean, the simple simple way to deal with it is just suck it up and finish your job, right? Depends on the injury. Absolutely. Exactly. exactly. So I mean, we're gonna- working
2: for the guy offshore. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember his name for the life of me, but he literally got two of his fingers chopped off in a clamp. And he didn't even, I mean, he squealed a little bit. Nobody knew anything until he was done he came up and he comes up squirting blood out of his fingers. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't have been me. I'd have up Get me out of here, fix my <laughs> fingers. <laughs>
0: I don't know, part of it, I guess you might be in shock, though, right, Sean? I mean, you've dealt with a lot of uh, injuries topside as an EMT, right?
1: Um, yeah, you. there's a good chance that you would be in shock, but it's mainly psychogenic shock. Um, you're not going to, with finger injuries, you're not going to be in any kind of bleeding out situation. So you're not going to go into shock from that, from hypovolemia or any of that stuff. It's more mainly going to be psychogenic shock. Okay. So the kind of
0: shock that I'm thinking of, that's like we're talking super serious traumatic stuff, huh?
1: <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. There's there's several different types of shock. They they bring them down into four categories, um, and bleeding out is one of those categories, hypovolemia. But uh, with regard to that, you're not going to have enough bleeding with... Uh, you know, degloving a finger or finger injuries to bleed out. So it's going to be mainly psychic problems and um, you know problems with your head as far as that goes. Hey,
0: forgot to forgot to introduce you guys. I mean, didn't forget to introduce you, but let's get some background on both of you. Sean, you're a you're a dive medic. Uh, can you give us a little bit of background? I know you were an instructor at the uh, School of Oceanarian, right?
1: Yeah, I, um, I actually graduated dive school in 95. Prior to that, I was an EMT for several years. Um, went out to the Gulf and uh, dove out there with Caldive. Actually, I, didn't, I wasn't a diver. I was a tender out there with Caldive out in the Gulf. Uh, after that, drug up because of the family issues. Got into uh, uh, being a paramedic. I was a paramedic out in uh, North Carolina. I was a flight medic in Arizona. And then got back into diving as an instructor over at the College of Oceaneering in, I believe it was two thousand and seven. Uh, and as of now, I'm with the Port of Long Beach uh, dive team, uh, diver medic, and diver.
0: Were you there when the uh, like at the very end of the Oceaneering?
1: Yeah, I was there when the uh, when national. Yeah, I was there when National University bought the school and closed down the LA campus stupidly. Uh, you mean when they destroyed the school? Absolutely, dude. You you got that right. Uh, I taught there at the LA campus, and they opened up a San Diego campus. So I taught at both campuses. Uh, uh, initially, I taught EMT, and then um, toward the end there, the last two classes, I taught the diver medic, uh class. Nice, man. Vic, so did you go to school, Oceanary? No. Um, I actually grew up in this
2: industry. So my father owned a commercial diving company in the early 80s in New York, upstate New York where I grew up. So mm-hmm. I literally started with him, and I didn't even hit dive school until after I'd been diving for mm-hmm. I started, I jumped in the water my first half when I was 14, and nice, then dude. I was 19. I went to the North Sea and worked for Stolt Comax. Um, they were just, they were Stolt Comax, and they went to Stoke Offshore. Um, I didn't even hit dive school until so I came back to the U.S. Uh, when I was 23 years old, and uh-huh. I ended up going to DIT. And while I was there, just I was acing everything, and they couldn't figure out why. And I was bored out of my damn gore. And I, one of the one of the instructors who remain nameless who knew who I was asked me what the hell I was doing there, and I told him, "Well, I want to work in the GOM, and they won't let me in the game without a freaking ADC card because IMCA was not recognized in the U.S. at that time." So, so weird, <laughs> yeah. So I and I had talked to ADCI prior to going to school. They're like, no, you have to go to school. Blah blah blah. Long story short, he's like, "You have your long books, right?" I'm like, "Yeah." I'm like, give me them. So I gave him my long books. He sent everything to ADC. ADC sent me my SSA card, and I left him with the work. So I only made it through eight months of DIT. I had like a month and a, half, a month and a half left uh, until graduation. Just family matters, all that. Shit. I was like, I'd rather be working, making money. So. I took off. I went to the Gulf, and that was that. <laughs> I've been doing it ever since.
1: What companies did you work for out in the Gulf?
2: So, God, I worked for Seamar. I worked for Caldive. I worked for Global Industries. I've done a lot of work with Specialty. Um, pretty much everybody at one point in time or another. You know, I'm 45, and I've been doing this since I was 14. So I hit the gum at 23. I spent nine years with CalDive, um, pretty much primarily nice. with Caldive. Dive. Uh, matter of fact, Jackie Krause, uh, funny story with her, she was a red hat tender fresh out of school um, when I met her at CalDive. And then uh, she ended up teaching at Polytech later on, which is kind of kind of ironic. <coughs> so I did a lot of work with CalDive. I actually loved working with CalDive. They were one of the best companies I ever worked for. And I did some work with Ranger and You know, I was with Ranger for about four hitches with them. I did like nine hitches with Seymour. So, you know, it was just bounce around freelance. And then I started my own company. Um, I had to get custody of my daughter. So once I took custody of her, I started my own company and was just doing freelance union work in Cali. Um, Working for a lot of the different companies in California, especially NorCal. Working with 34 and 2375 forever. And, uh, which is actually where I met you. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, it's now I'm in Houston, still freelancing, still supervising, and, uh, you know,
0: still plugging away. It's great that you were able to come on for this episode of uh, Dive Injuries because you've seen quite a bit. I mean, you've seen the safety programs of so many companies. What's your opinion on, you know, well, I guess it's not so much of an opinion. I mean, safety starts before you even hit the water, right?
2: Safety starts the second you get on the job site. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you got a dive spread set up or not. You know, I mean, that's that's the bottom line. Like, um, literally, I was supervising a job um, last week that was split. As a matter of fact, that job's still going on, that I was kicked off of that job because I wrote the general contractor up for a near miss. And the uh, contractor that was working under the general didn't like that I wrote them up and got pissed off and told the company either get me off the damn job or they were losing it. But
0: and, how many uh, times are companies telling you to? If you see something, say something. Everyone has all every stop work authority. Every time, every single time.
2: And what happened was, I mean, it was. I don't want to name the companies, um, but I mean, especially to the fact that I'm actually about to go run another job for the same company I was running a job that job with. Um, but the bottom line was, you know, they had uh, they these these employees showed up. They didn't announce themselves. To anybody that they were there. I was in the dime trailer running the rack and running the comms. Um, we had umbilicals running through the bay door, down, you know, we pulled the grate off the floor, down the grade, they were working a story down. And uh, these employees happened to just pull up. One jumped out, ran in, started running the overhead crane, while the other one backed, was backing a pickup in and literally was six inches from the umbilical with a diver in the water. And I had to, you know, yell for an all stop, got the diver out of the water went, made sure everybody was okay. The tire was not on the umbilical, so there was no loss of air. And uh, I ended up, eventually, I decided to, uh, it was serious enough that I was going to write up the general contractor. And when I wrote their guys up, and I went to the actual contractor that we were contracted by, and I explained to him that this needs to be signed by whoever the representative is for that company, his response was, and I quote, and if I can't say it like this, I'm sorry, was, who does this guy think he is? He's making a mountain out of a f- molehill. And so I went around him and I went to the general contractor's representative that was on site and introduced myself very nicely, explained to him what had happened, and told him that I needed the incident report signed, which he in turn signed all three copies, gave him his copy, kept our copy, and gave my boss, the owner of the company I was uh, supervising the job for, their, the other company's copy so that he could give it to them. And about four hours later, uh, he got a phone call to get me off the job because they didn't like the fact that I had wrote up the general contractor. Well, I'm sorry, my guys come first, not anybody else on there. Whoever I've got on my dive team, especially when I got a guy in the water, they take precedence over everybody else. So I happily said, okay, you know, that's what it is. That's what it is. I walked.
0: And that's what I did. Yeah, you, you know, and, and that's situations like that unfortunately, are actually pretty damn common, aren't they? Mm Mm-hmm. They're very I mean, it's one of those things where it's it's like we're in the water and you want to swing a load over our head. You want to swing loads and move. It's just like I said, it's ridiculous, you know, Um, and you did good. You did really good by, you know, writing them up, you know, doing the near miss, and it's not gonna happen again on that job site. Oh
2: yeah, no. Now,
0: it might happen on another job site, but it's not gonna happen again there. Yeah,
2: no, it um it actually was the guys were actually surprised because they when they figured out what had happened, um the other guys on the dive team were talking about, you know, walking off the job. And so we ended up pulling that the the contractor into a safety meeting, emergency safety meeting, and his attitude was, well, they're not my crew anyway, so you know I didn't have nothing to do with it. And one of the guys that was on my crew, um, he's a 15-year golf diver, and he was pissed, real pissed. And so when I wrote him up, and I let all the guys sign the write-up, or let them all read the write-up, and then I had them all sign the write-up. All my guys, my whole dive team, every one of them read it, and every one of them signed it. Um, and to them, that was like, well, wait a minute, this guy actually cares more about us than he actually does about whether or not his ass is going to be in hot water. and. I'm a big boy, you know. I can strap my balls. It's not a problem, you know. I, I will take. I'll take the flack and I'll take the heat, and I don't give a about taking it. I going to do what's right when it comes to my guys, and that's all there is to it. And that's what I did. It wasn't that I wanted praise or anything like that.
0: It was this was seriously screwed up, and it really needed to be addressed, and it got addressed. So Vic, we both know an operator would never swing a load over somebody's head. But say that did happen. Say they swung a load right over the diver's work area near his bubbles, and that load shifted, went in the drink. What do we do? Do we deploy the standby diver immediately? It
2: depends on the situation, how bad it is. I mean, if the diver can get himself out of the water, then obviously he's going to get himself out. If he's unconscious, mm-hmm. then yeah, we're deploying standby. No offense or much about it. If he's pinned down, yeah, we're deploying standby. You know, which is why I will never work on a crew that only has three guys where their tender is a standby diver. I've been in those situations. Um, Actually, I got—I was working for a company in San Diego uh, back in 2005, and we were doing a job on you know point one with sub base, and I ended up getting pinned down by a wake breaker in 65 feet of water. Well, my standby diver was my tender, and so luckily it was my umbilical (laughs) that pinned under. I wasn't crushed. I wasn't underneath the wake breaker itself. But this thing's 12 tons. You know, so they were like, we're going to splash standby. And I'm like, no, you're not. Because my tender is my standby diver. Just get me down with the rigging. And I was able to move my umbilical enough through the mud to be able to get enough out to where I could re-rig up the wake breaker that came undone. And they could lift it up off my umbilical. And I could get my umbilical out and set it back down, re-rig it, and pull it up on deck. But by the time I got up on deck, because I got a reverse squeeze because it took me from five feet to 65 feet, like in a matter of a couple seconds. Um, So it took me about an hour to clear my ear. So I'd already way past my bottom time. When I got on deck, there was the chief of the Jefferson City, which was the sub that was in front of us. So the chief of the Jefferson City was on deck. The owner of the company was on deck. The owner's son was on deck. The, the uh, base commander was on deck and Nazi was on deck. And they were all standing there looking at me like, Are you okay? And I'm like, I'm fine. Like it wasn't that big of a deal. You know, if I'd have been underneath it, you'd have been doing a body recovery. You know, you there's no way I would have survived that. You wouldn't have been I wouldn't have got out of it. It wasn't as big of a deal as they made it out to be. But I mean, when you got when you're talking about three, four man crews, that's what you tend to run into. You run into, you know, issues like that, which is why they <laughs> are to minimum mandatory five-man
1: crews. And and I'm glad, if I might chime in, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you said that about the three-man crews, because in my opinion, the standby diver is one of the most important um, members of the crew on any dive, in my opinion. Right. Um, the diver, obviously, is going to take precedent on a lot of issues, However, for me, I want my standby diver absolutely ready to go at any time in case I get in trouble. And when you mentioned earlier about the, um, the dive situation or what uh, uh, you also have to, if you have an injury underwater, whether or not to jump the standby, you're right. It, it's all case dependent. Um, yep. One of the cases that you would think about is, if your diver is doing any in-water stops. If your right. diver is injured and has to do an in-water stop on the way up, uh, yeah, I would definitely jump the standby just to observe the diver and observe the injury at that point and make a determination of whether or not we need to come up. If there's a chamber on site, you got to take that into consideration yep. where you're diving, um, yep. When you and I were at Caldive, I'm sure you know this as well as I do, I was on Caldiver 1 for a long time, unfortunately. And we crossed a, paths. Yeah, I guarantee we've crossed paths. Yeah, more than likely, because Caldiver 1, unfortunately, was a sat boat, so I didn't get much yep. diving on the sat boat. But we had uh, a couple of surface jobs where we had multiple chambers on the Caldiver 1, mm-hmm. and we did have the case of omitted decompression where one of our divers um, had something, and this was back in '95, so I'm a little fuzzy on the details, <clears throat> but we had multiple chambers for the 30 02s, but also for any treatment that we needed to do at that point. <coughs> so a lot of your cases for in-water injuries are completely case-dependent on the situation, and also, like I said before, the standby diver, I feel, is one of the most important Members, I'm I'm sorry. sorry,
2: Go back to what you were saying about uh, in-water stops. I won't even run a job where if there's a potential where we have to do any in-water deco, it's not going to happen. There's going to be no in-water stops. We're going to have chamber on site. We're going to have you know medics obviously on site, and it's going to be you know it'll just end up being a non-scheduled omitted B where we'll get the guy out of the water and get him in the chamber with the diver medic and have everything assessed at that point. I don't. I will never actually will never assess something in the water because you really can't. Um Well, you got a diver with a helmet on and you really can't assess. Them. Um So as far as in-water stops go, um that is not a safe. So when ride. we're
0: talking about potential in-water stops, we're talking about that weird middle footage where you're looking at like, you know, 50 feet, 60 feet, you get pinned down or something or whatever, and you blow your tail. So- you're going to do a 20 minute in-water stop at 20 feet. You know, so that's right, kind of the weird. If you've got an
1: unconscious day. diver, you're
2: not going to do. I mean, every scenario is different, but if you've got an unconscious diver, you're not going to do a 20-minute in-water I with an unconscious diver.
1: Yeah, I would, I would absolutely agree with that. If you've got a medical or a diving situation that you have an unconscious diver or any sort of trauma that is um, extensive, yeah, you're definitely not going to do an in-water stop. You're going to have to treat that injury um, and in all cases. Uh, you would jump the standby, obviously, for a unconscious diver to assist right, with getting him up. But, uh, yeah, you're not going to. And I agree with you wholeheartedly as far as having a, If you're going to be doing scheduled standard um, decompression where you're going to have to do in-water stops, you better have a chamber on board. But I think Armando was talking about situations where you would have an injury happen underwater or any circumstances that happen underwater to where you would put that diver beyond a no decompression dive and put him in a standard dive and now have to make the decision, are you going to in-water deco? Again, that's all case dependent on the injury. Right, exactly. And as you know, I mean, when you look at when you look
2: at an injured diver in the water, I mean, if he's conscious, then you have a better scenario of being able to do, and you know, say an in-water deco stop. Everything is case dependent, everything. But nobody, especially with the safety standards they have now, nobody even wants to think about having to do any kind of in-water deco. Period. Let alone in-water deco with a diver that's injured.
0: You see what I'm saying? It's a great point, man. So, Sean, when we're uh, when we're working doing construction in the water, some of the main injuries that we're looking looking at, I mean, or or Victor, you can chime in too. What's some of the main injuries that we've we've seen or that we're trained in? I, I mean, we're talking, what limb injuries, finger injuries, you know, mostly hands. Right,
1: hands are pretty darn important. You know, hands we're always doing stuff to our hands and feet. Yeah, hands and feet. I would have to say that a lot of the injuries that I have either been a part of or have heard of 90, 95 percent been some kind of underwater trauma, whether it be from to the limbs, to the to the feet. Absolutely. Very rarely because of I, I think because our industry focuses so much on diving related maladies. I think that we might become a little bit more complacent when it comes to traumatic injuries, um, sea life injuries, um, and, and so forth. So, yeah, a lot of it is mainly extremity injuries, when in of, of itself is pretty, you know, can be pretty life threatening in, in some cases, but in most cases, it's not. It's just uh, bleeding control, hemorrhage control, but. I also believe that if you do have an extremity injury under the water of any significance, you need to come out of the water and not that's, tough it that's out. That's very correct. That tough is very out correct. In the water,
2: yeah, because you never know when you're in the water. You don't. You don't have the full <laughs> full force of movement that you have when you're on the surface. So, if you say, let's say, for instance, um, I know somebody that's actually happened to. He tore his arm from his pec. All the way down, he literally tore it to the elbow, back, bicep, everything, uh, trying to set a riser clamp by himself. He didn't realize how bad his injury was because he said it hurt a little bit, it felt like a and But when he got out of the water and he tried to move, he couldn't even move his arm. And it's because the water gives you that resistance, especially at any depth. It'll give you the resistance to where you'll be, it'll be, it'll be like you have an ace bandage on. You'll be able to kind of move. And when you hit the surface, it's a whole different story. You know, like right now, the biggest injuries I'm seeing going on, which are causing fatalities, are the delta P situations happening everywhere, all over the place. And at this day and age, we shouldn't even be
0: having delta P problems at all. Yeah, we just had a we just had a fatality a couple of days ago in Georgia. Uh, mm-hmm. A diver lost his life. You know, they're saying it, it might be a potential delta P injury. He was at a Lake Oliver Dam. And uh, yep. I was reading some of the news reports, couldn't find a ton on it. It just, uh, and they're terrible news reports. I mean, these journalists nowadays, they just do not. You saw the news report where it said digging. scuba diver died? Yes. That one? It says scuba yeah. diver. And then yep. even the news report on the, uh, I kind of want to try to find the name of the reporter and put her on blast. Because mm-hmm. the way that she she said the report on the news was like, you know, uh, a diver is dead, you know, it's, it's not cool, dude, you know, use some sympathy, no. you know, soften your voice a little bit, you know, somebody well, like, that's a, like a the, brother in our trade well, passed away and you're, you're yep. talking like he's a piece of roadkill, you know? Well, look at those three guys that died in, uh, what was it uh, in
2: LA? Was it uh five years ago, six years ago where they were working in the aqueduct and they were doing that penetration dive and the main diver got hurt. And they sent in a standby, or they had the in-water tender go to get him. And then he, something happened with him. And then they sent another guy in. And they ended up doing a body recovery on three divers. You know, and they, their, their news report was just like, oh, three divers killed in the LA aqueduct. Okay? I mean, what is that? You know, why Why did it even happen? And then there was nothing, no follow. There's never a follow-up. With a, with a diving death, there's never a follow-up
1: to what actually happened. We have to find that ourselves. Let me ask you a question there, Vic. When we, uh, when we talk about Delta P and, and incidents um, and fatalities in regard to that, what do you think is the biggest reason why we still have problems with that? Is it a lack of um, foresight by the dive company to actually realize that there is potential hazard? Is there a failure uh, for lockout tagout? Um, what do you where do you think the failure lies with that?
0: And just real quick, Victor, before you uh, give his answer, um, just for those that are listening that don't know what we're referencing when we're talking about Delta P, we're we're talking about differential pressure, and uh, that's responsible for uh, two out of three commercial diving fatalities. It's uh, it's when you got the uh, potential of water to move from an area of higher pressure into an area of lower pressure. So this is going to cause like a ton of suction. Uh, it'll get you trapped. It'll get you sucked into a pipe or Whatnot? It's several different things, and it's basically scenario based. Um,
2: And the reason I say that is, uh, for instance, I did a job walk with uh, Kiwi in Carlsbad at the water, at the water plant, the power plant that they were going to decommission. And they said that it's 100% flow going on, and it's going to stay 100% flow. So, my first question to every one of those guys that was in that room is, What is the flow rate per hour of water that's going through here? You know, because I know the math to actually take the flow rate and turn it into what is the actual current that's going through. So if you put a diver in, for instance, what I told them, you know, I mean, for you, it may be no big deal. But if we have to put a diver in there and he's got to fight a three, you know, three and a half knot current and he gets pinned up against something, he's done. There's no getting out of it. The biggest issue I've seen is you get a lot of supervisors and a lot of company guys that you know from dive companies that they want to impress the client. They want to get the job done. They want to get it done as fast as they can. And there's simple safety procedures that you can take in 90% of the cases to actually prevent a Delta P from happening. One, have your blueprints for whatever area you're working in. There's always blueprints. Have the schematics, be able to look at them. See if it's a grate, if it's a bubble, if it's a flat great wall, and you've got a live current running through there, block it off. I've done several jobs where I've literally over, you know, not overcharged, but charged up the job because we've had to go in and blank off those grates just to make sure that you know the guy that's getting in the water is going to be
0: safe. So I mean, there's safe ways to get around some of these dangers, but uh, you know, sometimes like I've dealt with a. With, with some uh, damn jobs where we were going down there to inspect to make sure that the gates closed. You know, certain mm-hmm. gates are closed. That's always a sketchy one. You know, every mm-hmm. time we had to do that, that's that was always one of those pucker things where it's like, crap, this gate's open. Got to make sure that I stay far enough away that I'm not going to get sucked into it, but I need to be close enough to make sure that I can see. So at those, at those points, when you're doing something like that, where you know there's a possible Delta P situation, and you can't blanket it off, you can't put stop logs in there, you got to make sure you have a good topside crew. You got to make sure you have a good tender sure. that's got you tight, that's that's giving you you, you know hose checks every so often. And uh, you just got to be super aware. And that's why we're talking about this stuff. So that way, the next guy behind us, so the next guy that has that sketchy job, he says, yeah, I listen to these guys on this podcast, and uh, I'm going to be aware of that. I'm going to approach this a different way. I just saw the... Uh, I just saw the article right now. I just brought it up on the computer. The young guy, uh young guy that died in uh, Georgia. His name was uh, Alex Paxton. So He's mm-hmm. thirty-one years old, and uh, definitely a cut a little bit too short, man. Um, we don't know the details yet, but uh, potential delta P situation is what what we do know, and uh, we'll be you know praying for his family for uh, to have comfort. <coughs> Take a shot for him. You got you got your bottle there. Oh,
2: I got I got what's left in my glass, which
0: is a shot. There we go, buddy. All right.
2: So ready It's Alex? Here we go. Ah, and there's been several cases over the last three years. I mean, you had um, the poor guy that that, you know ended up killed at the Orville Dam. That my buddy actually was on that job when that happened, and you know they all the, the worst part about a diver dying. Besides the fact that he obviously passed, is the rumors that fly in the midst of trying to figure out what happened. So the first news report that came out about his death, you know, was he hit ten feet. He was, you know, everything was good. He was fine. Then all of a sudden, the dive supervisor heard his hat flood, and that was the last thing they heard. They pulled up, you know, they pulled up an empty hat. They figured first the the, the news was, oh, a diver commits suicide at Orville Dam. Diver didn't commit suicide. Well, I finally, after, what was it, two years now, three years now, I finally got the whole story from somebody else that was there that I happened to be on a job with recently. And what had happened was he got hit by a log that had been, that was underwater, and it hit his hat, and it took his hat directly off his head wow. um, is, what actually, is what had actually happened, and it broke his neck. Um, there was another, there was a 22-year-old kid fresh out of dive school that was diving in a paper mill two weeks later that was killed because he got hit in a chest with a log, and it crushed his chest.
1: It's, sorry, inside of a paper mill. All these you know, things. Are, go ahead. Now I was just going to say there The the worst part about diving fatalities that, that affect me is the fact that how many of these diving fatalities are preventable?
0: All of them. So, Vic, as a dive supervisor, what do you do specifically to uh, to help limit injuries on the job side or even potential deaths? I'm just saying, how do you prevent these deaths?
2: The bottom line is we're all a team. So the way I deal with this is I deal with it like this. What I do is I get the entire dive team together. I go over every inch of the job of what we're supposed to do and what we're looking at and what potential hazards are. And then I get every one of their inputs on what they might see, what they might be looking at, what they might, how they might want to approach the situation or approach the dive. And we, I mean, we literally have. Sometimes it's been an all-day meeting just to try to figure out what the dive plan is actually going to be to do that job. And it's with input from the guys that are going to be in the water, the guys that are topside. Whether it's myself in the water, myself tending, because I even own supervisor, I've still done it. The supervisor of the job, and we put the team, we put the plan in place as a team, not as one person writes the dive plan and then turns around and says, "Here's your dive plan, go do it." And then we figure out what's the what's going to be the game plan and the safest way to approach this project. And if I've got a five man team. And I'm having my own resolutions on this job. And I've got two guys that will go, dude, there's something about this that just doesn't fit right. I don't think this is gonna be safe. I don't think this is gonna work the way that these people think it's going to. I go and all stop on the whole job, period. And we go back to the drawing board with whoever is in charge and try to figure out what we
0: can do to make sure that everybody goes home. But Victor, dude, we're we're like a dying breed though, man. There's a bunch of bootlickers that are coming up you know, that don't
1: want to ruffle with them.
2: feathers. I, I won't work with them. I'll ruffle feathers all day long. And you know what? I look at it like this. <clears throat> Say I go on a job tomorrow. Say I call and I'll stop on that job because I don't even trust the dive team I have that's underneath me or the guys I'm working with. Bottom line, if I don't trust my dive supervisor, I'm not getting in the water, period. If I don't trust that tender, if there's something about that tender I just don't, Not personally like, but there's something that just doesn't click. I'm not getting in the water. And I expect every single person that's in this industry to be the exact same way. Because if not, at the end of the day, we're all a tool. We're replaceable. Yeah, the company's going to cop out a little bit of money. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it'll be drawn out for decades in court, whatever. But if we don't come home, we got people that are going to miss us. We got people that rely on us. So I would rather be canned in this industry, known as the biggest asshole on the planet, that just ruffled everybody's feathers there were,
0: than known as the yes man that got somebody killed. I don't
1: know if you fall in
0: love with a company and then you just do everything they tell you to do, or if that's your only thing. Because we know people in the industry that have been with one company, you know, for their whole career, or two companies, or whatever. You know, I don't know. It's dude. fear, That's a, bro. That's a it's huge- fear. Yeah. No, it's
2: fear. It's fear. It's they're more afraid of never working for that company again than they there's are. So of much, saying- there's but so, so many other
0: companies out there, though, dude. And that's the thing is that I was never afraid of losing a job because I know right. that I can hustle and I could try to find something else somewhere. Even if I got to right. work at McDonald's while I find the next dive job, I'm going to work at McDonald's <laughs> until I find the next dive job. You know, I'm going right. to work as a handyman. I'm doing Craigslist, you know, bull crap until the next one comes along. So for me, dragging up is not a big deal. You know, for me, you know, calling something else, not a big deal because. Yeah, it's not even about dragging up. Yeah,
1: Yeah, it's not even
2: about dragging up. And the biggest thing that I tell all these new guys, I get hit up all the time on Facebook, phone calls. Dude, I spend, I, I mean, my girlfriend will tell you, I spend hours, hours a week on the phone with new guys. And the reason I do that is because somehow they get my name. I don't know how, but they do. And they call me, and they ask me questions like, "What should I do? What shouldn't I do? And what schools do not teach these guys, especially Polytech?" I re- I turned down an instructor position at Polytech. I went look over in the new program, and I told him, I told that Heider idiot to shove it right up his ass. He was a liar. <laughs> he was never in sat.
1: He's full of shit. And I told him to shove it up his ass straight out. Lucky Holy for stuff. me, L- lucky for me, Vic. I never had to work for Hyder because he well, wasn't employed when I was teaching there.
2: Well, here's the thing. I used to go to Long Beach because Duke Ogden was a really good friend of my dad's. They were in the SEAL teams together. God so I've known Duke peace. Ogden since I was a little kid. And yes, God rest in peace. And Duke actually had me come up to the school for all the new all the new students that were coming in. I would go up on the on the you know the entry day where they would get to dive the Mark V and do the walk around and all that. And the first question I would ask them is, "How many of you guys are here to be underwater welders?" And you got ninety percent of the class raising their hand. (laughs) I tell them all to go home, and they're like, (laughs) "Why don't you go home?" Because you're wasting your money. And so they're literally they're welding. After about six months of this, the the intake for their weld department went so far down that they said, look, here's the deal. You can't be honest with these guys. You can't tell them what the industry is really about. You can't tell them that they're going to potentially recover their friends. You can't tell them that they're not going to weld. And I'm like, wait a minute. You want me, I'm doing this on my own free time. I'm driving two hours, spending all day up here, not getting paid for this, to help these these new prospective people out. And you're telling me you want me to lie to them. No, I don't think so. And so they you know, generously just asked me not to come back. Okay, no problem. So when these guys call me, I tell them straight out, I'm like, look, what did this school teach you? And I'm sorry, CBA is the biggest joke on the planet. And you've got a lot of these guys that are coming out of CDA thinking they're king shit. And I won't personally, I won't even hire them personally. For my company, I won't hire them. And they wonder why. And I'm like, what's the difference between a pneumatic fitting a hydraulic fitting, and a locking air fitting, they can't tell me. They can't tell me. Okay, well, let me interview you. Here, come. To, this is polytechnic, Sean. Here, I'm gonna, I want you to tie me six knots. I'm going to give you six knots to time me, they're always random.
0: They can't do it. You can't even tell knots. We haven't talked a whole lot about decompression sickness, which is kind of funny because when you're going through these dive schools, you know, yes, you have to identify, you know, whether or not you're possibly, you know, got decompression sickness, but to tell you the truth, we've at some point we've all been bent in our career. Um, mm-hmm. And the thing is, I did it to that, myself. <laughs> the
2: thing is, no bull- is, I'll let you finish, but no bullshit. I bet myself, but I'll tell you how after. <laughs>
0: holy cow. We got to hear that. But what it I was getting at was that the more common injuries are going to be construction related injuries in the water. Right. And we're talking, we talked a lot about Delta P tonight. And to tell you the truth, that's one of the the biggest injuries in our trade. That's going to cause a fatality. It's not going to be getting bent. It's not AGE. It's not, you know, all this other stuff. It's the Delta P issues, you know, or high current diving and high current issues. You know, Um, we're not going to be dying from loss of limbs. I haven't heard of any divers dying from chainsaw. Eye. Even
1: Caliber Shear didn't
2: die from a rustling limb.
0: Yeah. You know, you're going to hear stories like that. Like you started off tonight, you've got a story of another guy that uh that lost two of his fingers, you know, on on a riser clamp. We've all seen that video on the YouTube of that one diver that, you know, same thing on one of the clamps, ended up losing one of his fingers. Oh, I forgot about that one. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I forgot about that. And then Sean was telling me about another video of somebody losing, what, a couple fingers or something, Sean?
1: Yeah, losing a couple fingers off of a, look to be a riser clamp as well, just by not paying attention. Um, and to dovetail on your point, Armando, I think that most of the injuries that happen, you're right, are not from the bends or AGE, overinflation, chokes, whatever it might be. It's the little stuff. But I think most injuries happen, and I, I've i been preaching this for a long time. I think most injuries happen from complacency. You get comfortable yeah. doing something, and you forget to, well, I've done that a thousand times. I don't need to do that. I don't need to do that check. Yeah. I don't need to do that check because I've done it a hundred times. I'm going to be fine. And that's when something happens that you don't have control over. And also task
0: saturation. Have you heard of that? term? Yes.
1: Yes. Task saturation.
0: So So you're saturated. I mean, you're concentrating this one task, (coughs) doing this one thing, and you're not aware of your surroundings. It's a little bit different than complacency. You're focused on one main thing, but you're not taking in the peripheral and the peripheral is what gets you. That's the that right. bars that's getting close. Well, and, closer, here, and closer, here's closer, and here's what happens during right.
2: that is ninety percent of that is poor umbilical management. That is ninety percent of guys that end up getting injured in one way, shape, or another. It's always poor umbilical management. Bravo, you don't brother. Have,
1: bravo. Bravo. You bravo. don't
2: have the 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 momentum or the room to move that you need to move to do what you're doing. You figure all. Oh, my umbilical's tight. Okay, whatever. Well, if your umbilical's tight, it's because it's foul, Period. You know, if you got a die, if you got a tent surface telling you you got slack in the water and you're tight, you're fouled. You need to stop whatever the hell you're doing. Go unfollow your unfollow your umbilical, and then go back and finish what you're doing. So if you have to get out of the way of something, you can't. And that is the biggest thing that I preach to all of these new divers: is umbilical management. Here in Houston, it ain't California. We got blackout, one hundred percent, no biz whatsoever, none. And a lot of guys are getting hung up on tree limbs, on this, on that, and it's like, look, you need. We don't have floating umbilicals. We got sinking umbilicals.
0: You need to
2: manage your umbilical
1: one hundred percent of the time. Before you manage, to up. I know Sean. I think you were about to say
0: something about that.
1: I wasn't about to say anything about that, brother. <laughs> hey, it happens to all of us. No, you're, it's, you're, it's happened you're to you're me.
0: Sean's gotten so on me a couple of times about it because I'm one of those dudes that I love having a ton of slack in the water. I do. I love it. Not me.
1: <laughs> I love it. Yeah, but I if like you have having
2: enough slack that I can move and that's it.
1: Yeah. The only thing in my in 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 my situation or in my opinion, if you have too much slack in the water, it's eventually going to get fouled.
0: Man, there's a ton of a uh, ton of dive injuries and stuff that we have to look out for. You know, we talked about a lot today. Um, I want to thank you, Victor, for being on the show. You know, talked about uh, of things that happened to you and things that happen to other people and ways to avoid them. Sean, thanks for being on here as well. I. I personally thought it was an amazing show. How about you guys? I think it was fantastic. Why we're here, man, is we're here to try to spread awareness. You know, we're doing do's or don'ts, things to look out for. The big thing is that if you see something, say something, all stop authority and use it. I mean, there's other jobs. Don't fall in love with the darn job that you're at. If they're going to kill you, why would you want to work for them? If they're going to kill your buddy, why would you want to work for them anyways? So that wraps up episode number two. We sure were a little bent and sideways after this one. I'd like to thank Sean again for co-hosting and Victor, the Warrior Rivera, for being our guest. Big thank you to our listeners for your support. Please feel free to message us on our Instagram page our Facebook page or on our podcast pages. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear some of your sea stories, near misses, dive adventures, or just some good old-fashioned crap-talking until we meet again on the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. Fair winds and following seas.